Hi everybody, I'm John Sherwood and this is my podcast where I seek to fuel faith in Jesus in the 21st century. I'm a minister of the gospel and believe in making disciples who make disciples because Jesus really is beautiful and amazing and worth following with everything that we have. You can check out more resources at my website, johnsherwood.com, where I write about the intersection of faith and modern culture, as well as Bible study, leadership, and faith interviews, all designed to help ignite and fuel faith in Jesus Christ. And with all that, let's dive into the episode. Amen. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles, if you wouldn't mind. Isaiah chapter 52. We've been in a series called The Imitation of Christ. And we have been um, discussing what it means for us to imitate Jesus. And we've been talking about why do we even believe that Jesus is worthy of imitating in the first place. This is actually the last uh, of this series, Imitation of Christ. We're going to talk about imitating Christ's feet. Yes, his feet. James did a great job last week uh, speaking about Christ's humility and our pride that can so easily trip us up in imitating his humble attitude, and I'm grateful for brothers like James that get up here and share their hearts and the Word of God and preach. Really, really grateful. Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah talks about this concept of having beautiful feet in verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say, Zion, your God reigns. I don't know about you, but I have been made fun of my whole life for having the most hideous and ugly feet ever in humanity. Yeah, I certainly do not have beautiful feet. At least I don't have hobbit feet. They're not hairy, so thank God for that. But my toes are all kind of like that, you know. They've all been broken many times from a life of athletics and such. And so um, my stepfather used to tell me as a kid growing up that I had prehensile toes. So not only are they really crooked, but they're really long too, you know, and unfortunately I think my children got my genes for their dad's not beautiful feet. Some people do have beautiful feet, you know, a little cute, pretty, like perfectly proportioned, all the toes are straight and the second one's not longer than the big one, you know, like that kind of stuff. Some people have beautiful feet. But typically, feet are not something that we think of as the most desirable body part, right? We typically don't highlight those. And yet, Isaiah here talks about this idea of having beautiful feet. And think about the context, right? 1,500 years, or well, 2,500 years ago from now, and these people who are wearing not fresh Nike Air Force Ones, or really great, you know, Michael Edmonds leather shoes. These are raw and handmade materials. People's feet in this time of human history would have been very worn. Even at early ages, your feet would show signs of tremendous wear. Many people that didn't have money would have been barefoot everywhere. I don't know about you, but if I go barefoot for a day, I'm like in excruciating pain. My feet are so soft. My skin is not leathery because I'm in shoes all day long. I'm in great 21st century shoes. You know, everybody's like looking at my shoes right now, you know. Isaiah says that 
when these feet, these feet that are worn, these feet that are rugged, these feet that traverse the landscape with very little protection, when these feet bring a message that's good news, that brings a message of proclamation that God really reigns, he says, those feet are beautiful, even when they're bloody, even when they're dirty, even when they're calloused over, they're beautiful feet. What is good news to our world and our culture today? I was listening to the radio yesterday. I heard an ad that said, Black Friday may be over, but we're just getting warmed up on our savings. I thought, that's the good news of our culture? Good news of our world is that we can buy our way to happiness. We can, have, we can save our way to enjoyment. Having lots of stuff will bring fulfillment and meaning and purpose to our lives. Eating a huge turkey dinner that tastes so good is going to bring happiness. And then that stomach ache comes and we realize that the world's good news is just a lie. Jesus brought the best news this planet has ever and will ever receive. That we have inherent worth to God. Because we're made in his image. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the Imago Dei, that God made humanity unique amongst all creation because we bear his image like nothing else in all the universe. This is a message that Jesus brought us that we are inherently loved, adored, valued by this creator, not because of how much stuff we own, not because of the value that the world says is valuable, but because we're made in his image. Not because of what other people think about us and how esteemed we are. Not because we live in a 5,000 square foot palace or because we live under a bridge. But because we're made in his image. Unique amongst all creation in the universe. This is the message that beautiful feet bring. This is the message that Christ's feet brought. Let's watch this video that talks a little bit more about this kingdom gospel that beautiful feet bring. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger. And he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. 
Now, in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. So when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. Mark chapter 1. Imitating Jesus' feet, this good news, and bringing this news of his kingdom. Mark chapter 1, picking up in verse 29, it says, As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. 
Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went up to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and all his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everybody's looking for you! Jesus replies, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. You know, this past Thanksgiving, <clears throat> we were traveling in New York with some of our family, spending some good time connecting, and, and then everyone got sick. And our son, our youngest son contracted croup again and ended up in the ER again in New York. He's fine now. But there was a few nights of sleeplessness and a bit of anxiety. And you know, when Peter's mom here has this fever, I imagine in this day and age, a fever could be very scary. Because you don't know if they're going to recover. You don't know if they're going to die. And it would be very likely that someone would die, even from a virus that would cause a high fever. And you know, as we deal with physical ailments, something like fever or the onset of cancer, Jesus is a great healer. In fact, people hear of this healing, of this fever, of this woman, and what happens? Everybody who's sick comes to this guy. Hey, help us out. Even the demon-possessed, I don't know what that looks like, but they even came to Jesus because he had such power, such compassion, such empathy that he was willing to heal. We spent a couple of weeks, a few weeks ago, talking about the imitation of Jesus' hands and his work with people, his love for people in tangible, real ways in their physical lives. And yet here we see this duality, this complementary feat with Jesus' hands. That Jesus not only came to heal people's infirmities and change their physical lives and their circumstantial environments, but he says he also came to preach a message, to tell people about some truth that was even beyond and above their circumstances. And see, there's a duality right now in popular Western Christian thought. On one end of the spectrum, on one end of the pole, you have what's known as the social gospel or the social justice gospel that is very much imitating Jesus' hands. What I'm, what I'm describing is Jesus' hands where Jesus is healing people. He's going to the bridges. He's touching people's real lives in tangible ways. He's not just talking about ethereal kingdom, eternal ideas and does nothing for their physical needs, but no. He helps real people. He fights for the oppressed. He announces his ministry in Luke 4, as we talked about with the words of Isaiah, that he was the king to come 
and release captives, to give sight to the blind, to free the oppressed, to change people's realities right here, right now. And that's a part of Jesus. But then on the other end of the spectrum of Jesus, we also have his feet, what I'm calling his feet. And this can be polarizing in a Christian community. Because when you let go of one for the sake of the other, you don't have Jesus. And Jesus' feet on the other end say, no, 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 I'm not just here to do that. In fact, he tells his disciples, I'm not, I'm going to stop healing people for something greater. I got to go to new places to proclaim this message, to bring good news through my feet that there is a kingdom that is eternal, that is greater than our lives right here. And we can view our lives right here and we can understand and process our circumstances through a lens in which there is this eternal kingdom of which you, Jesus, are king. And if we let go of one for the sake of the other, we've missed Jesus as he really is. So what was it, verse 38, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. What does Jesus need to preach? Why is this why Jesus had come? Look earlier in the chapter. We're going to read in verse 14. Mark 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison, which would have been a good little while into Jesus' ministry, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming, there it is again, the good news, euangelion, of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This, of course, was not the first time that James and John and Simon and Andrew have ever heard of or seen Jesus. But this is a time where Jesus calls them specifically and changes their lives. Jesus not only heals the sick and drives out the demon possessed, he not only on one hand has these hands that radically change people's lives. I've shared personally about how Jesus' hands changed my life. I was taking communion just a few moments ago with you guys. And I shut my eyes and I'll probably get emotional as I relive this memory just moments ago. And as I'm thinking about Jesus and I'm thinking about my own past, I hear my one-year-old son babbling and cooing and playing and having fun. And I remember taking communion early on in the faith, not long after Jesus' hands had rescued me out of this pit of self-destruction and self-aggrandizing stupidity. And at that place in my life, I, I hated children. Every child I'd ever been around, including myself, was a snot-nosed little baby's kid brat. And I thought, no way do I want any of those. Marriage, maybe. Children, absolutely not. 
This was after Jesus' hands radically changed by life and circumstances. He's the one that got marriage to be a maybe in the first place. And here I am, many years later, taking communion, listening to the sound of my children. Jesus' hands will change our lives. And now I have an opportunity to bring this good news to generations. I get to be married to a Christian woman whose parents had Jesus' hand change their lives. And now they're a part of changing my children's lives. This is Jesus' hands at work. But his feet, his feet also bring a very important message. A message that says, no matter our circumstances, no matter the realities of our physical lives, no matter if we get horrible news at a moment's notice, we can still have hope. We can still have confidence. The Christian worldview is the only worldview in humanity that makes any sense of suffering. That's Jesus' feet. That's the message that he brings. He says, your suffering is temporary. It's for my Father's glory. And since I have been glorified and since I've been risen from the dead and conquered death, you also will conquer your suffering. Wait patiently in hope. It's not easy to do though, is it? The Imes family and everyone else, it's not easy to do. But Jesus is here walking with us. And he knows what it's like to empathize because he also suffered. And his message here that he tells these men as he, announce, he announces with his feet this message of good news. What does he say the good news is? He says, the kingdom of God is right near you. That is great news. What? I don't see any kingdom. I just got a boat and my family and a job and a life like every other human being, a life of toil, a life of working the field by the sweat of my brow and not producing any fruit, a life of struggle. Where is this kingdom? He says the kingdom of God has come near. Of course, his reference there is that he is the king. He brings the kingdom near. And then what does he say about the kingdom being near? He says, repent and believe. We cannot enter this kingdom of which Jesus announces without repentance. And as you might have noticed earlier on in some of the things that were said here publicly, repentance is a big deal. And God takes it very seriously. We cannot cheapen, lessen, or minimize the death of Jesus, His Son, and His King, thinking that we're going to get the work of His hands in our lives without respecting the message of His feet, which is that we must repent. Even as He went along healing people with His hands, telling people, where are your accusers, woman? They've all left. Then neither do I accuse you yet. Leave your life of sin. And when we let go of Jesus' hands, for Jesus' feet, or we let go of Jesus' feet for Jesus' hands, we have a skewed gospel that is no gospel at all. And this is what polarizes much of Jesus' church. 
They see people over here. They see people that grab onto Jesus' hands and we go to the bridges and we serve people and we touch their lives and we try to help their circumstances right here and right now. But we don't ever preach a message of repentance and that Jesus' kingdom is near them and it's good news and why it's good news and it's absent of all that. And the feet go, what are you doing, hands? That's not truth. And the hands go, feet, what are you doing? You're just trying to save people's souls, but you're not going to the bridges. You're not willing to touch the lepers. You're not willing to love people that don't look like you and don't come from the same economic background as you or don't speak the same language as you. And Jesus' body gets torn apart because we've let go of a whole gospel. And so for me, as I'm wrestling with this in my own life and trying to figure out what does this look like? How is this practice to both embody Jesus' hands and Jesus' feet? To both love and care and in real ways tangibly interact and engage and help people, individuals and cultural systems, while not let, letting go of this good news message. That for <clears throat> as much as I want to improve people's circumstances, if it is absent of the message that their circumstances are only temporary anyway, and no matter how good they get, you could gain the whole world and let lose or forfeit your very self, then I've not been faithful to Jesus. Romans chapter 10, Paul picks up this idea of beautiful feet. Paul was uniquely qualified to have beautiful feet himself. They likely would have looked very much like Jesus. He says in his epistles that he was shipwrecked, hungry, homeless, spent an entire night adrift at sea. Could you imagine spending an entire night adrift in the water? No ship in the salt water. You would die very quickly. He says he received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews three separate times. This man bore the marks of Christ. And often that's what he would tell people authenticated his apostleship. It wasn't that he could do miracles. It wasn't that he saw the risen Jesus personally on the road to Damascus. It was that he suffered for the name of Jesus. He said, that's what makes me a Christian. And in Romans chapter 10, in verse 14, he says, How then can they, meaning the world, call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So who has been sent? Just like Jesus with Simon and Andrew and James and John, he sends those who follow him. He says, come and follow me and I'm gonna send you to fish for people. And so this isn't just the pastor's job. This isn't just the really spiritual people's job. Jesus says, you wanna come follow me? You're leaving and I'm gonna go with you. So I want to challenge the church 
Let's struggle, let's wrestle, let's contend to keep a hold of both Jesus' hands and Jesus' feet. And in the context of today, specifically thinking of Jesus' feet, beautiful feet, this good news message, think about, are you preaching? Do you preach the good news in your workplace, in your home, in your class? Preaching can take many different forms. It's not usually the one that I'm doing right now. It's the one that says, hey, what do you really value and find meaning in, in your life? Is it just that we can extend Black Friday deals a little longer? It sounds silly, but go back to work tomorrow and have those conversations and see what you find. The world has nothing to offer in terms of hope except for stuff and validation from each other that can turn on a dime. That's right. We have good news. Are you preaching this good news? Are you preaching a news that, you know what? You and I, we can have a meaning and a purpose and an existence in this life and forever that is so much greater. A purpose and an existence that can take you from hating children to adoring them. That can change generations of family lines. That can have joy and rejoice in the midst of great suffering and great trial. Have a conversation with someone this week about the good news of Jesus' kingdom. That's our gospel that he sent us out to preach. And as we're preaching, let us use the power of the Spirit and his hands to care for people in real ways, in tangible ways, and to know that caring for them can never be divorced from sharing this good news. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you that he came not only with healing hands and driving out demons and rescuing people's physical lives, even from enemies, people willing to stone that woman, and he rescues her from the very grip of death itself. Yet he also said, woman, go leave your life of sin. He told the rich man, Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me and you will have true riches in heaven. Father, thank you for his feet that brought this message of good news, this, this news that radically transforms our lives and ultimately gives us eternal life itself. God, we struggle to even comprehend the concept of eternal life. What's heaven going to be like? Father, we don't know all the answers, but we know that it is going to be greater than any mind has ever conceived or any ear heard the great riches that you have prepared for us who believe. Help us, Father, to share this good news, to be sent to preach, that we all are preachers. I pray, Father, that every disciple of Jesus would see themselves as a preacher. Even if we can't speak, you will speak through us. I'm so grateful for that, God. Thank you for giving us the greatest meaning and purpose and fulfillment and fullness of life.
that we could ever experience for you are the author of life itself. Help us to be humble. Help us to be encouraged by your love and to encourage one another. And help us, Father, to be unashamed, to not shrink back, to think that somehow this message is not in vogue or not popular or somehow outdated and antiquated and silly. But God, that we can look at the evidence of your work in our lives and the lives of others throughout history and continues today and say, no, you are true. Let every man be made a liar. You are real. And we thank you for that, Father, that you're a real and present God and Father in our lives. You're not distant. You're not leaving us here as orphans to wander around and grope around by ourselves, but you give us your spirit that binds us together, makes us family. And we're so grateful for that, God. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Faith Fuel podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time.